Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask now your blessing on your word. Your word to the church at Sardis and your word to Meadowview Baptist Church here today. We thank you for it. Spirit, we ask you to work in Jesus' name. Amen. You may notice that we're moving a little bit out of order. Uh, what happened to Thyatira? Uh, we moved beyond that. We're a little mixed up. Chuck is going to be speaking on Thyatira next week, uh, but he had to work this weekend, and so we've made these adjustments. And so we will get back to Thyatira, but today our focus is on Sardis. And let's just get a few Sardis facts out of the way. It was a historical city, uh, significant uh, because of its trade and its particular location on the Persian Royal Road. Uh, it was southeast of Thyatira, about 50 miles east of Smyrna. You can look that up on your map in your Bible. And because of its strategic location, it continued to flourish as an important inland trade center even after a devastating earthquake uh, that nearly wiped out the city in A.D. 17. And Tiberius uh, helped to provide the reconstruction, and that led to many new structures as well as rebuilding those that existed. And one of those structures was a temple uh, that guess who they dedicated it to the worship of? Tiberius, uh, the Roman emperor. And so they began to worship him and got involved in the cult worship as well. Their city included plenty of other pagan opportunities to worship. Uh, Artemis and Zeus and other Greco-Roman deities were honored throughout the city as well. But once again, we actually begin the letter with the introduction of the author, Jesus, the Lord, uh, that is the sovereign one of the churches. John writes, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Jesus has has the seven stars. Jesus has the seven spirits. The seven stars, if we go back to chapter 1, the references to the seven churches, possibly the, the heavenly angels that, that represent those particular churches, and they belong to Jesus. He has them. He is Lord over them. Thank the Lord that this is not my church. This is not your church. It is his church. He has the church. 
This is the Lord Jesus, church. We are thankful for that. Additionally, Jesus has the seven spirits of God. Another reference that takes us back to chapter 1 that describes the Holy Spirit's involvement in those churches. Jesus possesses the full power of the Holy Spirit as He directs, as He oversees the churches. And this, this introduction, like all the introductions to these letters, will prove valuable as we consider the remainder of the letter. For now, consider this truth though without the Holy Spirit there's no life without the Holy Spirit there's no life without the Holy Spirit uh, his work of regeneration in our lives we are dead in our trespasses and sins according to the scripture and without the Holy Spirit at work in a church guess what that church is that church is also dead because it lacks the life that the Spirit gives. That leads to the next point. Jesus' opening phrase seems to follow suit with the, with the previous letters. He says, I know your works. And I wonder if they thought, well, here, here it comes. He's going he's gonna to give us a commendation. That's kind of what we expect. He's told the other churches, I know what's going on. And he says, I know your works. But Jesus doesn't offer a commendation. Instead, Jesus judges the church of Sardis as dead he writes I know your works you have a, a reputation of being alive but you are dead I like how the net words this he says I know your deeds you have a reputation that you're alive but in reality in reality you are dead from the outside the church at sardis it looked great it looked good they had made a name for themselves they had a good reputation in their community and probably amongst christians at large but the one whose opinion mattered the most the one who who with his flaming eyes sees through all of the facade he sees and concludes that the church of sardis was christian in name only it's kind of like the end of The Wizard of Oz. Uh, spoiler alert if you've never seen the end of The Wizard of Oz. The great almighty Oz who they thought, oh, he has all the power, ends up to be what? Smoke and mirrors. There's nothing of substance there. It reminds me of Jesus' description of the Pharisees in the Gospels where he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs, but on the inside are dead men's bones. And those whitewashed tombs, I, I've been able to see them. You've probably seen pictures of them. They look beautiful as the sun is shining. And you think, man, that is, a, that is a beautiful box. But when you open it up, it's rancid and there's nothing of value inside. It's deadness. Jesus says that's what's going on in Sardis. And there are a variety of suggestions that, that historians and scholars make regarding the, the nature of the church's reputation. Maybe, maybe they were super involved in their community and they did a lot of good things. They helped with the, the feeding centers and, and they helped to clothe people and, and they helped in all sorts of areas, but, but their motives, maybe they were off. That's what some suggest. Some, some suggest that it, it could possibly be uh, that they had a lot of their doctrine in line. Doctrinally, they seem sound, but they were missing the one key doctrinal component that holds it all together, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The message of his death, his burial, resurrection. We'll come back to that in a moment because I think that's probably one of the best explanations that we could give. Maybe they were Christians who, who could check all of the boxes that needed to be checked to, to, to let other people know that they're a Christian. That they did their daily Bible reading. They did their daily prayer. They, they fasted. They did all of the things they needed to do, but they did those deeds in their own power apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, apart from the life that the Spirit would give. I think there's a, a connection we can make here with, with that story of Samson in the Old Testament where, where Samson kept, kept moving further and further, closer and closer to revealing the, the, the power of the Lord in him. And, and what happened that last time when they said, Samson, the Philistines are on you. And he, he got up to fight, but he did not know that the Lord's power had left him. Sardis would one day rise up and not know that they had no life, that they had no power in them. Whatever the case, Jesus tears down their facade, exposes them to be frauds, but he does not do this. Please understand this. He does not do this to shame them. He, he does not do this to humiliate them, to hurt them, but he is graciously giving them another chance to turn to him. He is in His grace and mercy giving them an opportunity to put their trust in Him once again as we suppose it had been in generations past. And so in verses 2 and 3, Jesus offers these clear commands to the church at Sardis. Instructions that are born out of love. Merciful instructions. And first He pleads with them and He just says, Wake up! Wake up! And I think it's probably the wake-up that you give to your kids on the 10th time, right? Or your husband on the 10th time. Like, wake up! you got to get up now. We can't hit the snooze button anymore. But he says, wake up. Wake up from your lethargy. Wake up from the self-deception. See, they had come to view themselves as, as spiritual, spiritually mature people. And Jesus is saying, wake up because you're dreaming that. That's not the reality. You're not spiritual at all because you lack the Holy Spirit. Next, he offers a hopeful word, suggesting this, that they strengthen what remains, at least while it remains. What's he referencing here? What, what remains at, at the church at Sardis? What should they be focusing their attention to? Well, here we're, we're pulled back a little bit and we're reminded that even in a dead and even in a dying church, there's still life. There's, there's still truth there. There are still ministries. There, there are still people who are remaining faithful to Christ. I, I thought of that even this morning as I was driving here. That, that's the history of even this church in the back. It, it seemed quite dead to most people, but there was life still here. God was using these, these widow ladies to continue to be faithful to Christ. And so when Jesus says that the church is dead, he's speaking in a general term because if you, if you notice in verse 4, it reads this way. He says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments and they walk with me in white because they're worthy. You see, there were, there were embers that were still smoldering under the ash of Sardis. And Jesus is instructing the whole of the church, focus on those embers. Focus on the life that you, you have. And, and I know I've shared this, this many times before, but one of my favorite descriptions 
that we find in Scripture of, of Jesus is, is actually from Isaiah 42.3, but it's quoted of him in Matthew 12, verse 20. And here's what it is. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. See, the nature of Jesus, our Savior Jesus, is to care for the smoldering wick. It's to take that thing that, that looks done and finished and, and to bring life back to it so that it fans into a flame once again. And that is exactly what he wants to see happen at the church of Sardis. Jesus doesn't wipe the slate clean and start over. He redeems. He restores. That's what he's in the business of. And as we move in, into verse 3, I believe we really get to the crux of the problem at Sardis, the, the epicenter of their death, as Jesus calls them now to remember what you have received and heard. So he says, you've got to wake up. You've got you to focus on what remains. And now he says, remember what you have received and heard. This church meant to be the church of Jesus Christ there in the city of Sardis. They had forgotten Jesus. That's the message they had, they had received and heard. The church at Sardis had at some point in their past had forgotten the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had forgotten the message that made them a church in the first place. It left Christ behind. Maybe like the Galatians, they, they moved on to supposed bigger and better things like the law. And they thought, well, let, let, let's, let's take it this route. And Paul says, who has bewitched you? Why would you go back to the chains again now that you've experienced the freedom of the Spirit? There was a large Jewish community in the city of Sardis, and so there may have been great pressure on them. Maybe they, like others, Throughout history became more focused on personal morality and, and fa failed to recognize that apart from the righteousness of Jesus Christ, we're all immoral. That there is no morality. Whatever the case, they needed to get back to what Paul calls the issue or the matter of first importance to the Corinthians. What does he say? The thing of first importance, the thing that I delivered to you of first importance is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and the others and he goes on. That is the message of first importance. That's the message Sardis would have received and that's the message that they had forgotten. And so Jesus says, remember the gospel and then he says this, and, and keep it. He doesn't just say, remember it. He says, now you have to keep it. Keep the gospel. Hold tight to the gospel. Don't lose it again. How many of you parents have ever lost a kid somewhere? Let's be honest. Nobody? Wow, okay, okay. I was going to say, this can't be that uncommon. You know, you're in a mall. You don't know where they went. Um, I remember I was a teenager and my sister got mad at my mom and jumped in one of those circle things in a Dillard's and... and we had the whole mall on lockdown and mom was weeping and crying through every store and, and here she is sitting in the middle of that thing. Uh, but yeah, you, you've lost your kid. You, you've lost him there at the mall. You've lost him in some other uh, festival or setting. Some of you have probably lost him at church at some point in the past and you just don't know where they're at. Well, what happens in that moment? You are fearful. You're terrified. And so after that, when you regain your child, you are far more vigilant. I will not lose this kid again. 
Because you don't want to go through the trauma of what you just went through and all of the things that your imagination did to you in those moments. You hold on tightly. We must keep the gospel and hold on that tightly with a vigilance. Rounding out the commands, Jesus offers a sharp summary that just simply says what he said to many of the other churches. Repent. Repent. Turn away from your, your fake Christianity and turn to me, the real Christ. Turn back to me, the, the, the true Christ, the one and the only Christ. And so to prove the urgency of their sin and their deadness, Jesus warns the church at Sardis of his imminent return. This is the latter part of verse 3. He says, if you, if you will not wake up, then I'm going to come like a thief. And how does a thief come? He goes on to explain, and you will not know at the hour I come against you. A couple, couple important things to point out about this warning that Jesus gives here. First, is a thief doesn't tell you when he's coming. That, that's the point, right? You have to be ready and you have to be aware. You have to stay awake. You have to stay alert. You have to be vigilant. Jesus has already taught this in the Gospels in a couple of different places. Matthew 24, I'll just read this one. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and he would have let his house, he would have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Jesus' return is and always will be imminent. It could be at any moment. The second observation is a thief's coming is a hostile and it's an unwelcome event, isn't it? Jesus is clear at the end of verse 3 that he will come, notice his words, against you. Against you. He will come to Sardis in judgment if they do not heed his merciful and gracious words and invitation in this letter. I will come against you. And I hope, I hope they listened to his words. We don't get the rest of the story. And I hope and pray that, that we will heed Jesus' words today as well. And, and then in verse 5, once again, Jesus promises rewards to those who conquer. And man, he is not messing around with these promises. These are, these are quite compelling. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I'll never blot out his name out of the book of life. And I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. Jesus will clothe the, the conqueror in white garments. So this means the one who awakens, uh, the one who remembers the gospel, clings to the gospel, keeps the gospel, the one who repents will be clothed in white garments. The, the, the faithful, the, the smoldering wick, you might remember from verse 4, they, they are already the ones who wear these garments. What does that mean? These garments represent the living. These garments represent the ones who, who have the life of the Spirit in them. Those who are made holy by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. They wear the white garments. The, the, though their sins were crimson, now they're made white as snow. As we can see how white that is. It's kind of blinding me coming in the back doors even this morning. 
Jesus will never blot the conqueror's name out of the book of life. Now there's a lot that we could say about this, the topic of the book of life, because this runs from the Old Testament all the way to the final book of the the New Testament that we're looking at here in Revelation. And so in summary, Jesus' promise is that the conqueror's eternal life, eternal destination is secured by the blood of Jesus. Their names will not and cannot be blotted out of the book of life. Nothing can remove that. And finally, we're promised that Jesus will confess the conqueror's name before the Father and the angels. In Matthew 10, uh, verse 32, Jesus was clear that those who openly confess their their loyalty, their faithfulness, uh, their devotion, their allegiance to Jesus on earth uh, will see Jesus openly confess them before the Father in heaven. This particular promise is what led, has led many of the, the scholars to believe that the central issue in Sardis could have been an unwillingness to confess the name of Jesus in their community. Because we've already learned in, in each of these communities, um, that could be a death sentence. That could certainly ruin your reputation amongst the people in the community if they knew you were one of those people who followed the lordship of Jesus Christ. Because that meant you didn't worship their gods. Uh, that, that meant that you didn't participate in their festivals and in the things that were going on in their community. And so th- there could be the idea that they were, they were following the, maybe the teachings of Jesus, but they had effectively gutted the life and the heart out of their church by dismissing the gospel of Jesus Christ himself. And, and I think that case is compelling. But whether accurate or not, what an incredible promise Jesus makes to his followers here. If you confess me before the world, I'll confess you before my Father and the angels in heaven. If you're here today and you confess Jesus as your Lord as as really we've already done in some of the songs we sing. And if you, if you continue in faithfulness through your life confessing Jesus as Lord, enduring to the end with His name on your lips, He will confess you before the Father in heaven and the angels in heaven. Two weeks ago, um, back in my hometown, there was a funeral uh, for a lady named Linda Vaughn None of you have ever met Linda Vaughn. Uh, I grew up with her oldest son, Scott. Linda didn't have the easiest of life. Her husband was not a believer, but she remained faithful to Christ throughout her life. She was one of my Sunday school teachers. She taught in children's church. She was there every vacation Bible school. She helped with Awana. She was just one of those ladies who made such an impact on my life just by being faithful to the church and faithful to the ministry and taught me story after story after story and was there faithfully teaching the gospel to kids like me for years and years. And and she passed away just two weeks ago. And, And though you don't know her name, and I only know her name because I interacted with her, Linda Vaughn, because she confessed the Lord Jesus throughout her life and even to the point of her death, 
when she entered eternity, Jesus himself confessed her name before the Father and the angels in heaven. What an incredible promise. What an incredible honor. Though nobody may know your name here, your name will be known in eternity. And not of anything you did, but all of what he did. The very Savior who saves us worms and wretches will by his own word confess us to be his brothers and sisters, heirs with him for all of eternity. What a remarkable promise Jesus makes. He concludes with that common refrain, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen, listen, listen to what Jesus has to say. And so what does Jesus have to say to us sitting here today? The first thing he says to us is, is wake up. That message rings clear from first century to the present situation. Wake up and remember the gospel. The truth is sin very easily deceives us and lulls us to sleep, doesn't it? The devil comes in and, and tempts us and before we know it, we're overwhelmed with it. We can, we can come to church, and we do. You're here, I'm here. And we can serve in all sorts of capacities and, and helping with, with kids' ministries and doing all sorts of various things. We can offer words of encouragement, but all the while, we're still holding on to our sin. We're still hiding it. We hide the dead bones behind the white curtain. We think, pastor can't see it. The, the, the people on my, my row can't see it. But Jesus does see it. He sees all of it. And, and today in mercy and grace, he pleads with all of us and says, wake up. You're dreaming if you think this is okay. Remember that you have been cleansed from your former sins. This is not how my children are called to live. Wake up. So for some it may be bitterness. And, and you just, you're, you're holding on to it. And not everybody has to see it. You, you can hide it well enough. But you're, you're hiding deadness on the inside. And you have to forgive. For others it may be greed. It's a selfishness with your money. It's a selfishness with your, with your time, with your other resources. Pornography. Worry. Fear. You hide it on the inside. Sometimes it's a rotting and struggling marriage relationship or some other relationship that you, you hide it away but nobody else sees it. And so today Jesus says, it's time to wake up. It's time to repent. It's time to remember the gospel that you're, you're freed from these things. It's time to confess your struggle to Christ. It's time to confess your struggle with another believer and invite them into your life and into your struggle. And some of you may be tempted 
right now to think, I'll take care of it. I know I'll take care of it. The time will come when I will take care of it. I promise I'll talk to somebody soon, but Jesus warns us here and in plenty of other places, do not presume upon my grace and mercy because I will return like a thief. He could return in judgment any time, and so when the Spirit convicts us, what should we do? Respond. In the moment, respond. Don't quench what the Holy Spirit desires to do in your life, but repent. Wake up, he says. Second, Jesus says this to Metaview. Metaview Baptist, I want you to keep the gospel. I want you to protect the gospel. I like how, how Paul puts it to Timothy and others in the New Testament. The gospel has been entrusted to us. It's our responsibility to keep it. It's our responsibility to teach it to the next generation and to the next generation so that it, so that it isn't um, defiled by worldly thinking. It isn't defiled by, by pagan thought, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we must not lose our grip on this, our only hope. Our only hope now, our only hope in the life to come. It's also the only hope the dying world has. And the fact is there are many gospelless churches. There were gospelless churches back then like Sardis. And there are gospel church, gospel-less churches today Churches that focus on morality. Be a good person. Love like Jesus loved. But that's the extent of the message. There's no power behind the message. They may focus on dynamic worship, and they have that down. They may focus on programs that are, that are awesome and the envy of all other churches. They may focus on tradition. They may focus on their history or their past. They may be a church that focuses on innovation and doing the newest thing. But missing amongst all that is the message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. And how we share in both His death and His life. And therein is our hope. And so we have to fight to keep Jesus central. We have to fight to keep the gospel message of Jesus Christ central to all we do as individuals and to all we do as a church, knowing him and making him known. Finally, one last point. Jesus says, confess my name before others. Jesus says to each of us who are sitting here today, confess my name before others. Do you willingly confess the name of Jesus before the world? Even though they may think, that's crazy. <laughs> I can't believe you believe that stuff. And there may be pushback or there may be ridicule. Do you willingly confess the name of Jesus? Do you willingly confess the lordship of Jesus? That he is, he is our authority. He is the one we are to follow. He is the one we are to model our lives after. Is your name then in the book of life? Will Jesus one day confess your name before the Father and the angels in heaven because you have unashamedly confessed his name here on earth? My friends, that's the question of all questions. What will you do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you believe in him? 
Will you do as it says in Romans 10 that you, you confess His name and you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead? And what's the promise that comes at the end of that verse? You will be saved. Where is your hope and who is it in? Sardis didn't have it. Some of you may not have it. But the invitation is open today. Confess the Lord Jesus Christ.